Welcome to So Dead, a podcast where nothing is sacred, not even Christmas. I'm Jen Carpenter. And I'm Danny Fairman. Happy True Crime Tuesday. And happy Taco Tuesday, Deadheads. Danny. It's Christmas Eve. It's the most wonderful time of the year. I'm so, I'm loving life right now. Christmas is your, Christmas is your taco, right? It is so my taco. (laughs) It is a true happy taco Tuesday. Oh my God. Though we are not having tacos, it's still a great day. Yes. Well, if anything can kill your holiday spirit, it's the story that I have for you guys today. Wah, wah. I'm going to tell you about the 1913 Italian Hall disaster in Calumet. I'm excited to hear this. I'm going to read you my bibliography first because I did a shit goddamn ton of research. Oh, boy. I don't swear a lot during this story, so I got to get it out now. Okay. And tomorrow's like a holy day, right? So right. I got to be on good behavior. I mean, behavior. you can't buy booze tomorrow, so. Okay. Well, it's not a problem for me. <laughs> me I'm already stacked up on my eggnog. Just kidding. That's disgusting. And I'll puke if anybody brings it near me. I don't drink eggnog like either. Like snot with cinnamon in it. It's like the goopy part Whoa. of the egg <laughs> that looks like snot. Yeah, it's gross. No, thank you. Okay. Anyway. So, my sources. Um, the podcast Stateside with Cynthia Canty. Um, a YouTube video by a man named Steve Leto called The Italian Hall Disaster Overview. An article written for MLive by Tanda Mitter in 2017. An article written for the Keweenaw Report in December 2018. That one didn't have an author listed. Um, the website copperrange.org. A State Journal article from December 27, 2013. Um, findagrave.com, my old standby. Wikipedia, and then something even better, something called the Upper Peninsula Wiki. Um, you know how fandoms have wikis like Game of Thrones? And That's cool. The UP has their own like fandom wiki page. I love it. <laughs> That's cool. I thought that was so funny. Um, and I just want to say here, um, almost every single source here tied back to Steve Leto, who did the YouTube video that I watched. So I believe that he okay. is kind of the leading expert on the Italian Hall disaster. Okay. He's written one book specifically on that and then another book on kind of issues surrounding it. Um, so he's very much, I mean, he probably did all of this research and okay. I just got it in different formats from different places. Sure, sure, sure. sure. Um, so well done, buddy. Well done, Steve. Um, So the Italian Hall disaster occurred on Christmas Eve 1913 in Calumet, Michigan in the Upper Peninsula. But before we can talk about the Italian Hall disaster, we have to talk about the copper mine strike of 1913. And before we talk about the strike, we have to talk about Copper Country. Copper Country was the name given to several counties in the Upper Peninsula located in and around the Keweenaw Peninsula in the 1800s. So the Keweenaw Peninsula, to me, I've always thought that the Upper Peninsula looks like a shark trying to eat Wisconsin. Yeah. With like an upper fin and a lower fin. Yes. The Keweenaw Peninsula would be the upper fin. Okay. So the upper, upper topmost part of the Upper Peninsula. Yep, yep, yep. That you're basically Canada. Yes. Quite honestly. Yeah. Even higher than some parts of Canada. Mm -hmm. (laughs) It's cold as shit there. Yeah. Um, This area, in its prime, was the world's greatest producer of copper, 
From 1871 to 1880, Copper Country produced more than half of the copper in the United States. Cool. That's a lot of fucking pennies. Mm-hmm. Uh, copper mining was prevalent in the area from 1845 until the 1960s. The largest mining company was Calumet and Hecla, or CNH, which was managed by a real asshole by the name of James McNaughton, who was also known as the King of Houghton County. Um, Houghton County is where the majority of the mining community was located. So throughout this story, you'll alternately hear me call it Copper Country, Calumet, Houghton Country, and the Keweenaw Peninsula. So just know that all of that is the same place. Okay. It's all the same thing. Okay. Um, there were no skill requirements for mine work. And more importantly, there was no language requirement. So immigrants flooded the area in the mid to late 1800s from Finland, Croatia, Sweden, Norway, Denmark, and other European countries. Basically a lot of white people. Mm-hmm. Um, they brought their families and their friends with them. And they began building a community in the northern upper peninsula. And if they didn't travel anywhere else, can you imagine how shitty they must have thought America was? Because it was so cold. Not that it's not beautiful. Right. It's beautiful up there. It is beautiful. Well, it's but it's so cold. They were so probably cold. like, this place. Right. Why of all places right. did we pick this place? Right. Right. Oh, my gosh. Okay. Um, the mining companies applied a paternalistic system to the rapidly growing community, which means that they built houses, shops, schools, and libraries for their employees. Nice. That meant that the mining companies owned Copper Country. They owned everything and meant that they owned their employees and mm. had control over nearly every aspect of their lives. I mean, look, as a businesswoman, that's brilliant and genius. But that's also really fucked up. Isn't that like monopoly? Yeah. Though? Yeah. Yes. <laughs> uh, at the heart of this strange community was Calumet. And here's where it gets a bit confusing. So stick with me on this little geography lesson here. Okay. Calumet today is a small village of about 700 residents. That village, though, until 1929, was known as Red Jacket. And the word Calumet was actually used to identify an area of over a dozen small mining towns. Hmm. So what we call Calumet today was just a small piece of what was Calumet in the early 1900s. Okay. If that makes sense. Yep, 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 yep. It yep. confused me a lot. So I had I spent way too much time figuring this out because it was very confusing That makes sense to though. me. Um, at its peak, Red Jacket had a population of over 4,500 people. So That's a pretty good amount of people back then. And now there's 700. Oh, shit. Um, they, what happened? Are we going to find out yep, what happened? Yep. Uh, and the overall population of Calumet Township, which was at the time, again, several different communities, was about 26,000 people. I didn't even know there were that many people in the UP total, let alone <laughs> in like, not quite a few city. people in the UP. Not 26,000 26, people, but. At one point, CNH alone had over 21,000 employees. So there's 26,000 people and 21,000 of them work for CNH Mining. Wow. Right. Um, just to tell you, I mean, when you say a mining town, that's literally all it was, was yep. a mining town. Um, so this mining community really transformed the entire area because, again, it was work that didn't require a lot of skill. But just because you didn't have to have an Ivy League education to do the work did not mean it wasn't dangerous. It was. One estimate I read said that in Copper Country alone, miners died on the job at an average of one per week, with 10 oh or God. more being seriously injured. 
Could you imagine going no. to work every week being like, I wonder who's dying this week? No. That's crazy. That's sad. They worked for long hours for little pay in obviously very unsafe conditions. Labor laws and workers' compensation weren't really a thing. Mm -mm. So if a minor was injured or killed on the job, his family got very little in the way of monetary compensation. Right. Enter the Western Federation of Minors, a union formed out west to fight for rights of minors and their families. The WFM was led by a man named Charles Moyer, who had quite a reputation as a union thug, quote unquote. <laughs> We've talked about them before. Mm. He was feared by mine management companies across the country and had even once been charged with murder. And we'll talk about that a little bit. In the midst of the Colorado labor wars, which Moyer was a key player in, he was charged for the assassination of a man named Frank Stuenberg, the fourth governor of Idaho. Stuenberg was actually a Democrat and a populist, and he was considered an ally by many labor unions, including the WFM, during his time as governor. But in 1899, following the destruction of a prominent mining company's mill at the hands of the WFM, Stuenberg declared martial law in Idaho and had the military brought in to quell the union uprising, which made him, him an instant enemy of the WFM and labor unions in general. So he was their ally. Now all of a sudden they think he did this thing and they hate him. On December 30th, 1905, Frank Stuenberg was killed by a bomb that was planted at his house by a man named Harry Orchard, a former miner and an active member of the WFM. Whoa. Harry Orchard confessed to being a paid assassin and a dynamiter for the WFM. <laughs> a dynamiter? <laughs> That's the word they used. I love that. Um, and said that he TNT. Was... <laughs> he uh, admitted to being responsible for at least 17 other deaths in carrying out orders that were given by the WFM, or more specifically, WFM bigwigs Charles Moyer, Big Bill Haywood, and George Pettibone. Harry Orchard was sentenced to death, but his sentence was later commuted to life in prison. Big Bill and George Pettibone were acquitted during separate trials, so the charges against Charles Moyer were dropped before he even went to trial. Um, so this is the reputation that Charles mm -hmm. Moyer brought to Copper Country with him, and understandably, local officials were concerned. And the king of Houghton County, James McNaughton, the C&H bigwig, mm -hmm. really wasn't happy. Because there was a new king in town, baby. <laughs> <laughs> and because since CNH was the biggest mining company in Copper Country, they stood to lose the most if their workers started demanding unreasonable things like a living wage or safe working conditions. Charles Moyer began organizing the miners and helped them draft a list of demands for their employers. They asked for better wages, $3 a day, please, sir. Uh, prior to an hourly wage, which is not how they were paid. They were paid mm. by weight. So oh, okay, yeah, they would sense. do the mining. They mm -hmm. would pile it all into their big uh, granger, yeah. <laughs> their big bucket. Yeah. Um, and then they didn't even have scales. So the mining company would be like, oh, that looks like about five pounds to me, Jimmy. That's dirty. Yeah. Um. And that's how they were paid, was by estimated weight, and the weight was estimated by the mining company. Hmm. Um, They also wanted an eight-hour workday, safer working conditions, and to halt the implementation of a piece of equipment called the one-man drill. 
copper miners used two-man drills, uh, which required, as you might imagine, two men to to operate them. (laughs) This meant that they worked using the buddy system, essentially. So nobody was ever alone. They had someone to talk to while they were down in the dark mines for hours. They could take turns and take breaks. And most importantly, they had someone to help them or call for help if something went wrong. The one-man drill would eliminate this practice, and the men would be on their own for 10 to 12 hours a day, just them and their drills. Could you fucking imagine that? No. Um, Down in the dark, lonely mines. So this would make an already dangerous job much more dangerous and an already shitty job much more shitty. Right. Uh, The list of demands was sent out to all of the mills in Copper Country, including CNH, and was universally ignored. So on July 23rd, 1913, all of the miners who aligned themselves with the union walked off the job and the strike was on. The civil unrest began almost immediately. Communities and families were torn apart. Everyone was forced to choose sides. Local authorities brought in strike breakers, um, which were hired goons whose sole purpose was to make life difficult for strikers by any means necessary. And quite often, those means included violence. What was unusual about this situation, though, was that it was usually the companies being impacted by the strike that brought in strike breakers. So C&H mm-hmm. would hire strike breakers to come in. Um, but in this case, it was the local government that was actually paying the strike breakers. So in what was supposed to be a dispute between employees and their employers, where the government's only role was to keep the peace, the government in Copper Country had not only chosen sides, but was actively trying to break up the strike. And that was pretty much unheard of, even back in the early 1900s when everything was shady. Mm -hmm. Aside from bringing in strike breakers, local government also illegally deputized mine workers that weren't part of the union. So joining the union was a choice. It wasn't like it is now where it's kind of all or nothing. All Mm -hmm. of the employees are in the union. It was, yes, I want in. No, I don't. So they had employees that were still working that hadn't joined the union. Um, And they just, they deputized them and gave them all guns. What? Yep. Um, so now there are all of these untrained, unqualified men running around copper country with guns and badges. When that wasn't enough to break up the strike, they took it a step further. Local leaders sent a request to the governor of Michigan stating that the strikers were rioting in the streets. The governor was all the way in Lansing, and he had no reason not to trust the local officials, and he sure as shit wasn't going all the way up there to check himself. So he deployed the National Guard to Copper Country. When the National Guard got there, they were pissed. They were up at the very tippy top of the country. It was cold. And there were no riots. It probably wasn't cold. It was August. I mean, it was probably a little cold up there. Who knows? I don't know. Um, The strikers were peaceful and organized. They were holding parades, marches, and demonstrations. Hmm. Not riots. Um, The National Guard stayed about a month and then withdrew half of their troops. About a month after the strike began, things started getting really ugly. Two of the most notable events to occur during the strike were the Seberville Massacre and the Daly Jane Murders. Yikes. On August 14, 1913, so almost exactly one month after the strike began, Mm -hmm. two striking miners, Ivan Kalan and Ivan Stymek, both Croatian immigrants, traveled on foot from their boarding house in Seberville to nearby South Range to collect strike benefits. When they arrived in South Range, they got bad news. The WFM did not have the means to fund a strike of this magnitude, and so there were no benefits to be had. So the men began their trek home. They stopped off to have a couple of drinks. 
Then they stopped at a general store in Painesville to buy a soda pop. Um, they were thirsty. Right. While Ivan and Ivan were shopping for Fago and Verners, the rest of the crew... <laughs> the rest of the crew that they'd traveled with left them behind. So then it's just the two of them at this point on the Rude. rest of the trip home. They were probably drunk a little bit, you I, know. Let's leave the Ivans back there. Right. Let's just keep going. <laughs> they were like, God damn it, you just had a drink. You can get Fago at home. Right. There's some red pop in the icebox. Come on, Ivans. So Ivan and Ivan were alone during the last leg of their journey. They took a shortcut across property owned by the mining company, and they were stopped by a man named Humphrey Quick. I don't even like that name at all. <laughs> I just don't like it. You know, sometimes you can look at a person and you know you don't like them. Mm-hmm. I can tell by the name Humphrey Quick that I don't like him. I like that. <laughs> Good old Humphrey. Uh, Humphrey was a non-union mine employee who'd been instructed to guard the property that the men were cutting across. He began yelling at the men in English, but Ivan and Ivan didn't speak English. They spoke Croatian. I had to look up to make sure that that was actually the language that they spoke in Croatia, was Croatian. Croatian? I was like, it sounds right, but I could be making it up. No, Have that's... you ever met a Croatian person? I'm sure. I have. I'm quite sure I have, but yeah. Um, His name was Ivan. Was it? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I think his name was Tony. He used to fuck my roommate. So Quick is yelling in English. The Ivans are yelling in Croatian. And nobody understands anybody. Um, the Ivans continued on their way. And they returned to their boarding house in Seabraville. Even though the incident ended with everyone unscathed, Humphrey Quick decided to be a little bitch and run to his boss about it. His boss instructed him to go to Seberville and bring the Ivans back with him so he could, quote-unquote, have a talk with them. So Humphrey Quick rounded up a posse of illegally deputized mine employees and government-funded strikebreakers, and they headed to the Putrich boarding house in Seberville. There, they found one of the Ivans, Ivan Kalan, outside with some friends that were playing a game of lawn bowling. Look, I tried to look up what lawn bowling is. It doesn't seem that anyone knows. Um, I have it in my head what I think it is. Right. So some stuff said it was like normal bowling on the lawn, just mm-hmm. with a smaller ball. And some things said it, it, the way it described it, it sounded more like shuffleboard. Oh. Only with bowling pins. So I really don't know. Well, that is bowling, basically. No, because you were supposed to like get the ball close to another ball without hitting it, without hitting the pins, hmm. but as close oh, to yeah, it yeah, as yeah, possible. It was, it, I don't know basically what lawn bowling is at all. It can be both. Yes. The men began beating Ivan and his friends with billy clubs. No. The owner of the house, Joseph Putrich, and his brother, Stephen, went running outside when they heard the commotion. Joseph told the gunmen that he didn't want any trouble at his house. Ivan Kalan managed to break away from his attackers and escape into the house. The situation began to die down, but when one of the boarders of the house threw a stick at one of the gunmen, the gunman turned around and fired at the first person he saw. Oh, no. That person was Steve Putrich, the homeowner's 39-year-old brother, who hmm. was neither the person who threw the stick nor the person that they went to the house looking for. Steve was hit in the stomach and died the next day in a local hospital. That sucks. And then almost like a shark feeding frenzy. The second they smelled blood, the mob went crazy. They surrounded the house and unloaded their weapons. They didn't stop firing until they were out of bullets. 
Inside the house were several boarders, along with Joseph Putrich's wife and their three young children, including a seven-month-old baby. As uh, Putrich's wife fled the house, a gun was fired so close to her that gunpowder burned her little baby's face. Her three- and four-year-old children were trapped inside the house, which was being riddled with bullets. 18-year-old Alois Tijan, a boarder, was shot in the abdomen as he ran up the stairs. He died in his brother's arms. The other Ivan, Ivan Stymak, was shot in the side but managed to escape the house. Also shot was Stanko Stepich, who was hit in the arm and back and also had a terrible name. I was thinking the same thing. Oh, my God. <laughs> and I'm really struggling with these names. I'm doing the best that I can. I'm sure I'm pronouncing them wrong, mm-hmm. but they are really difficult. Um, <laughs> once the gunmen were out of bullets, they took the time to plant shells, not shell shells, but like shotgun shells, mm-hmm. sticks and rocks precariously about so that it appeared to be a two-way fight. But there were no weapons in the Putrich boarding house. Hmm. Houghton County Sheriff James Cruz, who was an ally of the mine managers responsible for illegally deputizing 1,700 strike breakers and non-union mine workers, let the mob go. Of course. And it said that he actually helped them hide. (laughs) In fact, after all of this, he had the audacity to arrest the Ivans on a trespassing charge. Stop. Yeah. Sheriff Cruz was as corrupt as they came, but the prosecuting attorney for Houghton County, a man named Anthony Lucas, was of Croatian descent, just like the two Ivans and all of the people in the Putrich boarding house the day of the shooting. So he saw these men as actual human beings, as one should, mm-hmm. and he said, fuck you, buddy, to Sheriff Cruz and demanded that the men be charged with murder. Wow. In a show of solidarity, 5,000 people attended the funeral procession for Steve Putrich and Aloy to John the next day. Good. From there, things just got worse. Of course. The Daly Jane murders took place on December 7th, 1913. Unlike the Putrich boarding house, which was full of striking union members, the Daly boarding house was full of scabs, members brought in to do jobs of the striking workers. A big ethical Mm no-no, especially in a union town like ours. Right. Um, The Daly Boarding House was in Painesdale, which is another small mining community in Houghton County. It was actually right across the street from a house rented out by strike breakers. The Daly House was full that night. It was a double house, (laughs) uh, which had a second attached house. So I think today we just call those duplexes, right? Yeah. (laughs) Um, So Thomas and Mrs. Daly, the owners, lived in half of the main house. Five boarders rented out the other half. In the attached house lived Adna and Ada Nicholson and their five children who ranged in age from 3 to 16 and even more mining border scabs. So just before 2 a.m., the quiet of the Daly boarding house was shattered by gunfire, which was suddenly coming from all directions. Thomas Daly was shot in the head as he lay asleep in his bed. He died a short time later. On the second floor, brothers Arthur and Harry Jane, who had just arrived from England and were due to start work at the mines the following week, were fast asleep in their beds when their room was riddled with bullets. Arthur was hit in the head and died instantly. His brother Harry was killed by a single bullet that passed through his heart and lungs. In the Nicholson house, 13-year-old Mary was shot twice. One bullet grazed her scalp while another went through her shoulder. She survived. 
Her sisters, Marcia, who was 16, and Roseanne, who was 11, narrowly escaped death when bullets ripped through their pillows but did not hit them. Authorities instantly zeroed in on the Western Federation of Miners and some of its members. John Huta, Nick Verbanek, Jayla Merjalanen, and John Juntenen. Good yep. grief. Yep. <laughs> um, members of a supposed radicalized offshoot of the WFM called the Houghton County Brotherhood were all charged with murder. Here's what's really interesting. Some of the things that I've read and all of the stuff that I found was more recent um, these forums, this wiki page, mm-hmm. not Wikipedia, but the fandom wiki, all of it. Right. Depending on what you read, people still have very strong opinions. That's interesting. And they're very split. Um, some of it's like, oh, yeah, typical union thugs. The WFM mm-hmm. absolutely ordered this massacre. Um, you know, they didn't like scabs. They killed them, and they didn't care who they killed in the process. Right. Um, most of those types of sentiments were written by people from the Calumet area up in Copper Country. Um, other things I've read, and these are typically from outside sources and people looking at the situation with some distance and maybe some better perspective, mm-hmm. uh, say that the men were framed and that strike breakers were actually to blame. Interesting. Um, that they carried out the murders so that they could blame them on the WFM and weaken public support for the strikers. Mm-hmm. I mean, they were brought in to do whatever they had to do to break up the strike. And the strikers had the public support, so right. they were trying to ruin that. Um, I don't know which is true, but right. it's just interesting to me that still this many years later, people are split on what actually happened. Yeah. Following the Daly Jane murders, the Citizens Alliance came to town. The Citizens Alliance was the antithesis of the WFM and their longtime enemy. The Citizens Alliance was an anti-union organization that employed dirty tactics to break up the rise of union workers within corporations. Hmm. So the WFM are the gangsters of the union world for miners, and the Citizens Alliance is their exact opposite. Right. And now they're both in copper country. Interesting. This is like the making of a shit show. Right, which is exactly what it turned into. Um, If the mine managers didn't want the WFM in town, and they didn't, then the WFM certainly didn't want the Citizens Alliance in town. The two groups went to war, and the resulting casualties would change the face of Copper Country forever. As Christmas 1913 approached, Copper Country was in bad shape. The area was still reeling from the Daly Jane murders just a couple weeks prior, Uh, The WFM and the Citizens Alliance had everyone at war. Most of the residents had been out of work for close to six months by this point, and there was no end to the strike in sight. Yikes. The Italian Hall in Calumet was built in 1908 as a mixed-use building. On the first floor, there were two businesses, a saloon on one side and a tea company on the other. On the second floor, which was only accessible by a steep flight of stairs on the left side of the building under an arched doorway, was a main hall with a dining room, a bar room, and a stage. The space was known to be used by miners and union members. Because life in Calumet basically sucked and nobody had any money due to the ongoing strike, the Women's Auxiliary Club for the WFM decided to host a family-friendly Christmas party for striking workers at the Italian Hall on Christmas Eve 1913. The party was on the second floor. There was a large Christmas tree. Santa was there. The children all got small gifts. There was food. They sang songs. Over 600 people attended the party. 
What started out as a bright spot during dark days became the darkest day of all. Mm. According to witnesses, at 4.40 p.m., which that's really weird to me because I've always pictured this happening at night for some reason, Mm -hmm. Um, but it wasn't. It was in the middle of the day. Um, 4.40 p.m., a man wearing a Citizens Alliance pin on his jacket entered the Italian hall and made his way up to the second floor where the party was in full swing. He stood in front of the hall and shouted, fire, fire, twice in English, then disappeared. Pandemonium ensued. Now remember that most of these mining families were immigrants, so many of them didn't speak English. Those that did began repeating the warning, fire, fire. Those that didn't had no idea what was going on, but they could sense the danger. Everyone rushed to the stairway, the only way out of the building, save for a lone fire escape that nobody seemed to be aware was there. The first few people down the stairs made it out of the building safely, but then something awful happened. Someone tripped towards the bottom of the stairs as hundreds of people were pushing and panicking. Oh, no. This caused, essentially, a pileup of bodies in the steep stairway. Oh. Um, now, there are some, depending on what you read, there are some misconceptions mm-hmm. about what happened. Um, some things say that um, the doors were actually bolted from the outside so that they couldn't get out. That's not true. Um, they were open. Um, and other people say that the doors opened inward. That's also not true. You mm-hmm. can see very clearly in the pictures that right. they opened outwardly. Outward. Okay. So it was just that someone tripped. Um, nearly 100 people were trapped in the stairway. Most of them, unfortunately, were children. Oh, no. Records show that the nearest fire department was dispatched to the scene at 4.45 p.m., just five minutes after the chaos began. When they arrived, they found the entryway to the Italian hall so jam-packed with bodies that they actually had to go up the fire escape and start untangling the mess from the top. One of the interviews I read, the man said that he'd never seen anything like it. And we'll post a picture of the doorway on our page. Okay. A lot of things that I read described it as narrow. It's not narrow. It's actually a pretty wide, like Mm -hmm. at least a double, if not a triple stairway. But it's very steep in an odd way. Mm -hmm. Um, And so he said that just standing outside the building looking, there were just bodies from the floor to the ceiling in every direction, completely tangled together, and that it was (gasps) the oddest thing he's ever seen. Like looking at it, Without seeing behind it how the staircase was very, very steep, it was almost impossible to figure out how something like that even happened. Interesting. I can't even Uh, imagine it. Yeah. Um, To their horror, many of the bodies that firefighters pulled from the stairway were lifeless. The nearby town hall was transformed into a temporary morgue, and the dead bodies were carried there one by one as they were pulled from the wreckage. One live body that was pulled out of the mess was a man by the name of Edward Manley, a known strike breaker working for a security company that was in town. Hmm. He was spirited away from the scene and never seen or heard from again, except for the fact that documentation was later unearthed showing that he was alive and well and living in New York following the Italian hall disaster and still working for that same security company that couldn't find him. Of course. Yeah. Once the stairway was cleared and the death toll was finalized, the community was left reeling. 73 people had been trampled to death. Hmm. 58 of them were children. No. 
this is another thing where you'll see different numbers. The numbers, the 73 is pretty consistent, but the number of children, um, I actually changed it halfway through writing the story from 59 to 58. You'll see 60, you'll see 59, you'll see 58. Mm -hmm. The number that I'm using is the number that's on the actual memorial at the site. I went name by name um, and I've got the exact breakdown. So 58 is the accurate number. The youngest victim was two-year-old Raphael Lassar, hmm. who was killed along with his 13-year-old sister, Mary. The oldest victim was 66-year-old Kate Pateri, a widowed mother of 14. Four different families lost three of their children in this stampede. 26-year-old Abram Niamala and his wife of just two years, 21-year-old Marie, were both killed. Their four-month-old son, Reno, survived because his mother held him over her head as she was trampled to death in the staircase. Mm. 35-year-old Finnish immigrant Oscar Altonen lost his wife, Sana, and both of his daughters, nine-year-old Wilma and three-year-old Sylvia. Mm. 28-year-old Maddie Kataharvi lost his wife and three of his daughters. He was left alone with three children, six-year-old Willie, Four-year-old Arthur, who lost his twin sister Annie in the stampede, and newborn baby Alice, along with two older stepchildren, Hilja and Hilma. Hmm. Single father of five, Maddie, remarried after the massacre and had nine more children with his second wife. Whoa. These families were humongous. Yeah. All of them. I mean, you know, when you see someone lost three of their children, oh, they lost their three kids. No, these families had like seven, eight, nine kids. That's bonkers. Um, It was really crazy to see. Edwin Heikinen died in the staircase on his seventh birthday, along with two of his brothers, Ellis and Eno. 26-year-old Alina Manley was pregnant at the time of her death. She perished in the staircase along with her four-year-old son, Wesley, and her 10-year-old sister, Seda. 21-year-old Catherine Bronzo was killed, leaving behind her husband, Peter, and their one-and-a-half-year-old daughter, Renee. Four years after Catherine's death, Peter got remarried to Catherine's sister, May. If that's not weird enough, he married her on the same day his brother Antonio married her other sister, Anna. Weird. Yeah. Yeah. So these are just a few of the stories, obviously, but Mm -hmm. there were so many mothers killed with their children, multiple siblings from the same family. Um, We don't have time to cover all of them, but I did read through every single one of the memorials, and by the end, I was ready to take up drinking or smoking or something. (laughs) I think I just probably ate a bowl of cereal Mm. instead. Um, Only four of the people who died in the Italian hall disaster were grown men. Wow. And one of them wasn't even a minor. He was an insurance salesman and father of 10 children. So that's 58 children, 11 mothers, and four fathers. Wow. And most of these families had so many children that the loss was just catastrophic. So most of these houses had five, six, seven, or more kids. Um, So if 11 families of five-plus kids lost their mom, that's 50 to 60 kids without moms all of a sudden. In one community. Um, Dozens of kids without dads, hundreds of children who lost siblings, in a lot of cases more than one sibling, um, in doing the research and in finding photographs. 
I don't know why these were taken. I don't know who took them. I don't know who thought it was a good idea to publish them. But if you search Italian Hall disaster and just go through images, you will very quickly come across images from the morgue. Um, and they just had them all laid out in a row under sheets mm-hmm. and they just are babies and they look mm-hmm. like they're sleeping. We're not going to share those photos, no. but they are out there and they are so upsetting because they don't look injured at all. No. They just look like they're sleeping and they're mm-hmm. just little babies. So None of them sad. have shoes on. It's mm-hmm. just so, so fucking sad. Um, and w- the most famous photo um, has the title Christmas Eve in the morgue. <sighs> just so fucked up. Yeah. So all of this loss, and for what? There was never any fire at the Italian Hall that day. The consensus was that a strike breaker, a member of the Citizens Alliance, yelled fire to break up the party simply to be a dick. That he was. Did he intend to kill 60 fucking kids? Probably not. Probably not, but that's exactly what happened. And there are consequences for actions. Right. I was thinking about, not that this is, I mean, I guess maybe in today's world, this is comparative. You know, all those videos that people post Mm -hmm. of like pranks that they're pulling on people or even the ones that are meant to be helpful of the man showing how easy it is for him to kidnap a child because their parent isn't looking. Just giving ideas to people. Keep fucking around. Somebody's going to get killed. Right. You don't know how someone's going to, you may have. The simplest intention in the world of pissing someone off, being an asshole, being funny, Mm -hmm. getting a good video that's going to go viral. You do not know how someone's going to react to that. Yep. And look how this turned out. Mm -hmm. He didn't mean for people to die when he yelled fire, but he killed 73 people. Right. Over half of the people killed in the Italian Hall disaster were of Finnish descent. Mm-hmm. On December 27th, three days after the tragedy, an article was published in a Finnish-American newspaper branding the deaths as murder. The reporters who published the article were arrested. But Copper Country couldn't hide its corruption for much longer. They had the blood of dead babies on their hands, and the whole <laughs> world was watching. Right. The funerals were planned strategically so that one big procession to the cemetery could be held. All of the ceremonies were held on the afternoon of December 28th. Miners carried the small white caskets that held children. Carriages and hearses carried the adults. As each funeral ended, it joined the slow-moving procession, which was thousands of people deep. Over 20,000 spectators gathered in Calumet to watch as the procession made its way to Lakeview Cemetery, where all of the victims were buried. While some were buried on private plots purchased by their families, most were buried in one of two trench-style mass graves— Catholics in one, Protestants in the other. Hmm. But while the miners were focused on saying goodbye, the mine management companies, with the help of the local government, of course, Mm -hmm. were in panic mode. Following the disaster at the Italian Hall, Charles Moyer, remember him, he's the president of the WFM and he's possibly a murderer, probably. Um, He sent out bulletins and press releases demanding an inquest because the investigation being led by Copper County officials was bullshit. A coroner's inquest was held, but the coroner was just as shady as the sheriff. So these assholes insisted on conducting their witness interviews in English, even though most of the witnesses were immigrants and most of them didn't speak English. Authorities refused to allow interpreters to assist with the interview process. And as such, they didn't find any proof that this was anything other than an accident. 
because they didn't want to fucking find it. Right. Um, even though dozens of witnesses claimed to see a man wearing a Citizens Alliance pin yell fire and said that they could identify him in a lineup. The coroner's inquest ruled that there was no proof that the Citizens Alliance was involved and that the claim of fire had to have come from a union member attending the party because security was so tight that no strike breakers or anyone from the Citizens Alliance could have gotten inside. So even though the evidence didn't support that theory in any way, shape, or form, that became the official ruling. A grand jury that had been appointed earlier in the year to investigate strike-related crimes did not issue any indictments whatsoever. It was later discovered that nine members of that grand jury were actually members of the Citizens Alliance, while many others were mine employees and one was even the chauffeur to the president of CNH. So that's cool. I'm sure that they were super fair and unbiased right, in their investigations. Right. A little bit of a conflict. But Charles Moyer wasn't having any of this shit. He continued to be vocal about the tragedy and about the corruption in Copper Country. When CNH and the Citizens Alliance offered funds to help pay for the 73 funerals, he basically told them, fuck you, this is your fault, we take care of our own. On December 26, 1913, so two days after the tragedy, Charles Moyer was in his Houghton County hotel room at about 8.30 p.m. when Sheriff Cruz and a posse of 15 men showed up to talk about funeral arrangements. Mm -hmm. He told them that the WFM would handle it on their own and declined the offer of assistance. Sheriff Cruz and his men left, and just a couple of minutes later, a group of over a dozen men burst through the door. Several men grabbed Moyer and held him as one man struck him in the head with the butt of his revolver. During this scuffle, the gun went off and a bullet ripped through Moyer's shoulder. The men dragged him out of his hotel room, then literally dragged him through the streets of town over a mile to the train station. The whole time, a mob 75 people deep was shouting, lynch him and hang him. When they arrived at the train station... Guess who was there? James McNaughton, the manager of CNH. Mm -hmm. He rushed up to Moyer and said, You get out of this country forever. If you ever come back, I'll hang you. He then assaulted Moyer until the train arrived. Two of those illegally deputized Houghton County deputies joined Moyer on the train, which was headed to Chicago. Once they crossed state lines from Michigan into Wisconsin, the deputies got off the train, but not before warning Moyer once more to stay away from Copper Country or they would kill him. But Charles Moyer was a G. The day after his attack, he told reporters in Chicago that as soon as he was healed up, he would return to Calumet and, quote, fight those miners to the last. And he did return to Calumet, where the same grand jury that chose not to issue indictments in the Italian Hall disaster also didn't issue any indictments against Charles Moyer's attackers. Shocker. Mm -hmm. Instead, they issued an indictment against Charles Moyer for mm -hmm. his union organizing activities, as they put it. Um, the governor of Michigan was said to be shocked by the corrupt justice system in the UP, but did nothing about it. Probably because there was no bridge yet. The Mackinac Bridge was still, you know, 40, 50 years off. Mm -hmm. So to That's get to the UP in the winter... Yeah, that was probably a chore. It was like, handle your own business. <laughs> right. I don't want anything to do with you people That's right now. That's interesting to think about. Yeah. And the injustice would only get worse. In April 1914, the strike came to an end. 
the asshole mining companies won, and that the union was pushed out of copper country. To get their jobs back, workers had to tear up their union cards and denounce the Western Federation of Miners. In turn, they got a slight raise and slightly better working hours. Thousands of miners left Michigan following the Italian Hall disaster and the failed strike. So even though CNH and the other mining companies won, the strike began their slow decline, which eventually left many once booming mining communities nothing but ghost towns, from populations in the thousands to populations mm-hmm. in the hundreds. Um, Interesting. Speaking of ghosts, rumors oh, persisted boy. for years that the Italian Hall was haunted. It fell into disrepair and was demolished in 1984. All that remains is the stone arch that once served as the entrance to that awful staircase. There's also a historical marker, and last year a memorial stone was installed with the names and ages of everyone killed in the Italian Hall disaster. Every year on Christmas Eve, the path leading to the memorial is lined with 73 lighted lanterns in remembrance of the victims. The spot is now known as Italian Hall Memorial Park. No one was ever charged with a crime in the Italian Hall disaster, and it remains a sore spot for many locals. I bet it does. In 1941, world-famous musician Woody Guthrie wrote a song about the tragedy called 1913 Massacre, (laughs) which was redone in the 60s by Bob Dylan and again in the 70s by Arlo Guthrie. The song has a lot of inaccuracies, but its last line is chilling. The parents they cried and the miners they moaned. See what your greed for money has done. Oh. And that's the Italian Hall disaster. Oh, my gosh. That is quite the story. I know. I seriously, like, I just kept falling into rabbit hole after rabbit hole. Yeah. Because I'd find a story and it would say, oh, yeah, this guy might have been a murderer. Or, oh, yeah, these couple different murders happened. And I was like, but tell me everything about them. (laughs) Right. I mean, Um, that's... It's a lot. That's a lot. Yeah. How many pages did you write? Too many. <laughs> I was gonna say Way that too was many. Possibly the longest story we've told. You think? Let me count them. One page. Two pages. Three. I sound like the count. <laughs> Four. <laughs> Five. Six. Seven, almost eight pages. Yeah, that's the longest story. It's a we've long told. story. <laughs> that was a really long story, but it was so Every part of it needed to be told. Yes. To understand. I think, it and it doesn't get told that way very often. People talk about the Italian Hall disaster, not enough, but they do talk about it. Um, but not not to this degree. Yikes. It's crazy. My God. Wanna do file dump? Let's dump one more file here <laughs> in 2019. Oh my gosh, that's so weird. <laughs> I know. <laughs> um, so today we're going to tell you about our favorite Christmas traditions. You go first, because Christmas, Christmas is your thing. I mean, the entire season is my favorite tradition. But. But. I, what do I love? I love the elf on the shelf. The what? The elf on the shelf. The elf on the shelf? Oh my God, I mm. hate that thing. I missed I it. My kids are older, do. so I miss it. I, I would have it. expected you it. to not participate in that had it been around. I would not have. We go all out. We have a boy and a girl. They are married. We <laughs> they're have married. The dog and the um, yes, they're married. We had a girl, and then she showed up one year with a boy. Oh my gosh! So the girl is Snowflake, 
the boy is Hank. Our reindeer is Halloween. And our dog is Bernard. Okay. <laughs> I just feel like Christmas is already so much work. Mm. Like the whole season. It's not for, it is a lot of work, but I, that is work that I freaking love more than life itself. I do itself. love Christmas. And I like most of the parts of it, but I just feel like that adds such a like, oh like my some God, pressure. Why am I doing this? If I had young kids mm-hmm. that needed an elf, their elf would come once a week because they're so good. <laughs> you guys are so that. good that your elf only has to stop by one time a week, one not time. every day. That's so funny. Our elves bring presents. See, and also. You're already bleeding money in December. Why do you want to? I know, but bleed more dollars. That's not me that spends that money. It's the elf. Mm. Okay. <laughs> okay. Okay. Sure thing. Um, I don't know. I just love it so much. Like I'm like grinning. I'm cheese grinning right now because I'm thinking about <laughs> it. I do. I just love it. I'm a weirdo. Um, I'll, I'll own it. Anyway, what's your favorite tradition? I don't know if we have like tradition tradition. <laughs> <Do you laughs> One like, more time this year, I had to I mess know. up a normal word for you guys. Do you like have a family dinner? Do you open do up do- one gift on Christmas Eve? Like it, you know, because again, there are years we have four kids. There are years we have no kids. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, my family, his family, just it's a lot of working pieces to where we don't really have a specific way that we do things. Right. Um, but I would say that my favorite thing about Christmas is um, surprising the kids. Like they think oh. they know what they're getting and they think mm-hmm. they know what they want. But every year I we manage to surprise them That's somehow with something. That's the best part of giving. Yeah. I do want to say um, last year for Christmas – I got my husband a 23andMe kit, which I want one so bad. I want to do that. Mm -hmm. My kids want to do it. Um, And, you know, I know people are concerned about putting their DNA in a database, especially now because that on certain sites, the DNA that's input is now being used to, like, solve cold cases and old crimes. But if you're not a criminal, then you're okay. have at it. If someone I'm related to committed a murder 40 years ago, Mm -hmm. they deserve to get their ass caught because I spit in a tube. Right. Um, <laughs> but yeah, so I bought him one last Christmas and he still has not used it. Is he afraid? I think he might be a serial killer. <laughs> Just kidding. Jax is I don't not know why a serial he killer. It. He never uses any of the gifts that I buy him. He's very difficult in the sense that he won't give any suggestions. Hmm. And then we get him things he think we think he'll like and he never uses any we of got it. Dave's like that. He has a pile of stuff up that in our room. There's a... That he has not gotten. <sighs> that he hasn't opened from his birthday in There's July. There's a... Fishing pole somewhere. Don't you Um, hate that? Makes me angry because I love presents. I know. I'll give (sighs) you a whole list. I'll tell you what I want. Yep. But the thing is, is I get him stuff off his list, and he still doesn't use it. No, he just wanted to have it. He'll be like, "It's the wrong size." Oh my god! Go return it. Love you, Dave. As you're editing this, I love you. All right. All right. Well, thank you guys so much for making us a part of your day. Remember to rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast and follow us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and Patreon at So Dead Podcast. You can also find us online at SoDeadPodcast.com and email us your feedback and story ideas to SoDeadPodcast at gmail.com. Everyone have a wonderful Christmas and the best new year. 
Even if that just means staying at home where you're safe, eating a bunch of hors d'oeuvres, and going to bed early, that's what I'm going to do. Now get out there and shine. You magnificent what-the-fucks. 